while you're receiving that or looking at it or whatever, go ahead and turn. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. At least begin by reading there this morning. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm not sure what place music uh, that was written on this earth will have in heaven. I wonder if it will have any just because it's written by sinful people. But if we're allowed to have song requests up there, I want just once to hear all the saints of heaven singing, And Can It Be? I see the angels off to sit by. They can't sing it. They know nothing experientially of God's redeeming love. But all the people there will. What a glorious thing. All right, Ephesians 4. Are you there? Let's go ahead and stand. I'll read our text this morning. Ephesians 4. We'll begin in verse 29. Let no corrupt communication, corrupt literally means rotting, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand this morning. Lord, you know the complexities of life dwelling here under the sun. Lord, you tell us frankly what our nature is like. You tell us what to expect. You give us whatever reasoning behind it that we need to know, though many things are left not told to us. And you give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Your word is sufficient. Help us, Lord, in our journey of sanctification. Make us more fitted for heaven and fitted for service here. Father, thank you that you are intimately concerned with and interested in what's taking place here this morning. This is a manifestation of the body of Christ that is precious to you. And everyone here is precious to you, valuable. The Lord, help us with a right view of you and your thoughts towards us. Examine our own life. Make necessary changes to learn how to help others. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to kind of be zeroing in on that word that's contained there in verse 32, the word forgiving. Imagine if you decided to go on a drive this week, and uh, maybe after the snow melts, you want to go see some scenery and go to a part of the state you haven't been to. And there you are, heading along through pastures and cows, and appreciating the Lord's handiwork, when all of a sudden you smell something rather odd, it smells kind of hot, now your check engine light comes on, uh, your car begins to lurch, makes some noises that you frankly don't like very much, and your car uh, comes to a stop. You put on your emergency blinkers, you call AAA if you have it, or somebody else if you don't, and uh, you find yourself towed to the typical mechanic shop out in the middle of nowhere, And uh, there you sit in the waiting room, sort of impatiently. You're there right next to the coffee pot that looks like it wasn't washed since Jimmy Carter was president. And you're sort of half-heartedly flipping through a National Geographic from 1982. Uh, Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. I have multiple times. And uh, eventually, here comes the mechanic. And he has the look of a doctor coming into the waiting room, breaking some very bad news. And he says to you something like this. 
Uh, due to an unspecified, unspecified failure to maintain sufficient internal lubrication surrounding vital engine components, your pistons have effectively welded themselves to the inside of the cylinder walls, resulting in a very unpleasant circumstance commonly known as catastrophic engine failure. And you sort of look at them and you say, huh? Especially if you're not a mechanic like me, what, what, what did you just say? And he says, well, to put it in layman's terms, you let your engine run out of oil. And now your engine's fried. Can you understand that one? Yeah, I understand that one. You know, automobiles are truly a marvel of God-given human ingenuity. You can look on Toyota's website and ask the question, how many parts are in the average automobile? And they'll tell you there's roughly 30,000 parts that are made from slightly different components that all come together to make this modern marvel that uh, we really don't think much about, but most of us got here in one of them this morning. Uh, you pour a, a fossil fuel into the engine and through internal combustion and various other things, uh, most automobiles are capable of driving the equivalent of three times around the equator, of, or eight times around the equator of the earth, 300,000 miles. Pretty amazing deal. However, all those complex parts uh, working in harmony, you take the oil out, what happens? Metal on metal produces friction. Uh, many of you, I, I mentioned those swing sets I built in our basement. I put metal on metal, and well, what's happening? It's wearing right through itself. Those clips that hold 2,500 pounds are not going to hold that for much longer. I have to figure out a more permanent solution with some kind of bearing in there. But in your vehicle, without oil, friction occurs, heat begins to build, even hardened steel will warp, rods will bend, pieces will come apart, sometimes flying right through the engine case itself. The engine seizes up, and the whole process comes to a stop. Now you're sitting here, made in the image of God. You're one of now roughly 7.4 billion people dwelling on this terrestrial ball, all of which were made in the image of God, and none of which is exactly like you. And it is an absolute guarantee, as you interact with other complex creatures, even those who have been given a new nature in Christ, that friction is going to occur. It's inevitable. We see forgiveness uh, functions in many respects like the oil in human relationship. It lessens friction. It absorbs heat. It cleanses vital internal components that need cleansing. It protects against catastrophic failure. Uh, we're going to spend the next several weeks. I don't, I've liked the word several because that's ambiguous. I'm not sure how many weeks that is, but uh, several. Uh, we're going to spend several weeks uh, speaking about the Bible doctrine of forgiveness. Uh, many of you, I hope, have an outline in your hand. We're just barely even, even maybe we'll reference that this morning. I'm not even sure we'll get that far. But hang on to that. I'll try to have extras with me. And uh, keep in mind, that outline's not exhaustive. There's a lot more that could be on there. A lot more passages could be on there. But I did want something, sort of a one-page reference uh, that we can go back to and at least have a clear mental picture. I think that lays out fairly accurately the main framework, at least, of what the Bible does teach on the topic. We'll add more things as we go through it. Uh, bear with me this morning, please. Uh, most of our material is introductory. I don't like to preach and not wade through a text. We will get there. I guess you can look at this as sort of maybe a multiple-hour sermon that we're just going to take a piece of. And so I'm not sure how far we'll get, but most of what we talk about today is just going to introduce the topic. And I think it's necessary, uh, which is why we're going through uh, many of the things we're going to talk about. But I want to begin by issuing both a warning and a challenge. Now, the warning is this. It is a guarantee that with the topic this universally needed a topic this emotionally charged, a topic this widely misunderstood, and talking as and to people who have a Roman 7 nature, it's inevitable that uh, this topic is going to hit raw nerves somewhere. Probably in most of you. 
I don't think there's one of us here uh, that can't benefit from a comprehensive understanding of what forgiveness is and what it is not. Maybe you've noticed there's a lot of conflicting viewpoints and misinformation, like about every other topic. If I throw out and say, what is grace? Uh, most of the definitions you hear of that today are not Bible definitions. For that matter, if I say, who is God? Most of the definitions thrown out there are not Bible definitions, right? I've been reading an art, a magazine this week on unrelated topics. It's a, it's a copy of Israel, My Glory, which has been a helpful uh, a source over the years. But it's talking about mastering the art of redefinition. And it's talking about, in fact, it shows paint on the front. And this paintbrush just swirling all these colors together. And it's talking about navigating through the changing cultural context in the churches where these historic terms are being redefined in shocking proportions. And it is happening all over the place. So to ground ourselves in the words of God, it takes some time maybe to train our thinking to be in line with the thoughts of God on this. But the next several weeks, however long those weeks are, uh, might help save you from serious catastrophe in the months or years ahead or to help others. But here's the challenge. I know that a lot of what's talked about, hopefully, you're going to be able to help other people with. That's part of the goal. I don't think we should ever read the Scriptures and completely reject the idea that this might be used in another person's life. But what I want to challenge each of you is, make self-application happen first. I want to challenge you to listen to this particular topic not through the lens of, ooh, I hope so-and-so's listening. Confound it, I wish that person was here. How about God superintended that you were here with eyeballs and with ears that work? I think it's a good habit in our own Bible study to find out what does this passage mean? How can I bring my life into conformity with it? Who can I help with it? But if we bypass step two, and you do that consistently in preaching, we become very good at loading up ammunition for everybody else's problems, but conveniently neglecting our own. Now, forgiveness is a topic that affects every family here. Every family. There is not a, there is not a family here, a relationship here, that does not need this doesn't need to understand it, doesn't need to exercise it. I think it's very hard to overstate the importance of the concept of forgiveness. I have been looking forward to this for quite some time, but I think there's been other things we needed to go through on the way here. But it's important in every single relationship that's going to go beyond surface level, whether that's with people or whether that's with God Himself. I mean, you think you can be close to God without transparency? You think you can draw near to the Holy One without ongoing forgiveness? No, you can't. You can't. Our very salvation, the assurance of our salvation, our fellowship with God, having our prayers answered, our peace with one another, our growth as Christians, consistently avoiding hypocrisy, our fellowship within the local body, and many other examples could be mentioned, all of those are either directly or indirectly tied to a right understanding of the Bible doctrine of forgiveness. But in this age of redefinition, here's what alarms me. I'm honestly convinced this is one of the most misunderstood words in all of religious terminology. It's kind of like the word prayer. You know, what's the big catchphrase today? Some catastrophe happens. And everybody's supposed to text, and what do they say? Our prayers are with you. I hate to be unkind, but I'm wondering, what in the world does that mean? Prayers to who? Buddha? Prayers to yourself? Prayer in itself is worth nothing if it's not to the right one and coming the right way. The word forgiveness means nothing if it's not based on the right foundation and exercised with a fear of God at the center, it means nothing. We can talk about it all day, but it's going to do nothing of lasting value. 
Friends, examples of the misunderstandings on forgiveness, they, they are everywhere. They're manifested in church splits. Has that ever happened? Ongoing feuds between rival factions, both of whom refuse to budge. It's manifested by destroyed marriages. And when you hear from a professing Christian, we were incompatible, that means we never learned Bible conflict resolution. That's what that means. Uh, do I need to say this? No two sinners are ever compatible. Because the very essence of sin is, I am God and I'll do what I want. And two of those personalities under one roof can produce World War III. Or maybe not a destroyed marriage, maybe an ongoing cold war where parties sort of live as roommates rather than joined as one flesh in spirit and in truth. Dysfunctional families, so-called, are becoming the norm. And please understand, being, being born into that, that's not anybody's fault. But many of this is the fruit of generations of misunderstanding these types of things. I have to wonder the squeaky clean image of the 1950s. How good were things really? Well, do I need to remind us it produced the hippies of the 1960s? I would say there were some communication problems in the homes. Something generationally wasn't passed off despite the externals. And the next generation proved that in mass. Misunderstandings of forgiveness are shown in tense work environments by friends becoming bitter enemies all of a sudden or by the continual pattern of sin just getting swept under the rug. Not all sin, mind you. You see, sinners like us can be very good at picking and choosing. There are certain things we'll deal with consistently, but we get our own pet iniquities. But here's what I want to warn about there. To cover up sin is itself a sin. That sin becomes a habit over time. That habit becomes character. And character is very difficult to change if it's left unchecked. Let me illustrate this rather ridiculously. Let's say, all right, we've got here, let's say we have your average family living room, professing Christian family. Okay, it's depicted right there. And uh, if the walls could talk, what would they, what would they see? I don't know. Uh, what is the Lord witness to on a daily basis? Can't fool him. So here's sort of the center of our life and activity. Well, uh, sinners are present, aren't they? Friction's inevitable, isn't it? I'm not saying it has to blow out of proportion, but I'm saying the temptation to sin is there on a daily basis. Uh, whether you yield to it or not is another thing. Now there in our living room, you've heard it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know who the fool is who came up with that. Words can do more damage than this. Way more damage. And so, that mars our house. Let's see what else. How about, uh, I think other people are less important than me. I mean, when it comes down to it, I know what's going on, and I'm not going to serve anybody. Look, we're good as long as you do what I want. Uh, you don't form into my image, I'm telling you there's going to be consequences because you are under here. That goes in our living room. The angry speech comes. Things are slammed around. We're going to beat truth into people's heads. You're going to do what I say. No! Parents get upset and they yell at the children. That goes in our living room. Oh, I got it. It's the silent treatment. I'm just going to act like a block of wood. What's wrong? Nothing. I may do what you ask of me, but I'm not going to like it. 
And I'm not going to show I like it. I'm going to fume. That goes in our living room. Maybe let's add a little worldly filth, huh? A little violence on TV. Let's just fill our heads full of that. Hollywood's a big help to your godliness, isn't it? Just builds up the families in godliness. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Some people need to put that on their TV set. That goes in the living room. And uh, let's see, what else? Some other general filth, sin, that comes. Hard hearts like stones. Uh, I know. Let's talk about that other family. I mean, after all, if we talk about somebody else, why? Our sin doesn't look that bad. They're not here to cover their back, man. Let's stick them behind the fifth rib. Why did you hear what I heard about them? That goes in our living room. Oh, we teach our children, don't play with matches. If you found little Frankie somewhere playing with these, you'd be horrified. But I wonder, do we teach them by example? The tongue is a fire in a world of iniquity. And it will destroy your home faster than this. That goes in our living room. Well, eventually the passions die down maybe. and Maybe there's a sense of shame and everybody's sort of looking at the mess they've made. What are we going to do? You know, we've got to go to church tomorrow. We got company coming over. We got to clean this up. And this is where the sin becomes compounded. Because it gets covered. Somebody says, Oh, let's, let's all have a good cry. We'll just, we'll just hug each other and we'll cry. Even though we never deal with the root cause. And, uh, how about a little diversion? Let's just all watch a movie. Hey, but how about them, how about them uh, Golden State Warriors, huh? <clears throat> let's watch a game. Hey, let's all go to the park and we'll just kind of forget about this. That goes under there. And uh, maybe some excuses. I, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but man, I've had a hard day and been tired. Dog died. Boss yelled at me. I shouldn't have done it, but, but, but I, that goes under the rug. And how about some blame shifting? I wouldn't have done that if you didn't. I'll deal with my part when they deal with theirs. You know something? I'm not going to do anything about my sin. You deal with yours and then I'll fix mine. What's that saying? God is only worth being glorified when fellow sinners act accordingly. And after that, all bets are off. Is that sound theology? Okay, so that goes under our rug. What else? I mean, you name it. Excuses come. Uh, how about, oh, I know. We'll get mad at the pastor. It's his fault. Does that ever happen? How dare he apply the Word of God to me? I mean, come on. Who said pastors are supposed to do that? Aren't they supposed to make us feel good? How dare he point out my iniquity? I can't believe that. Let's hang him. I mean, I think he lays up all night Saturday trying to find ways to ruin our life. I think that's what he does. Well, there. It looks good. I, I, don't, I don't feel anything. You feel anything? I, I think we're ready for company. I'll tell you what. Let's all pretend like there's not a Volkswagen parked under our, our, our carpet. Right? That is what this world system does with sin. That is what Christians who don't understand biblical forgiveness, that's what they do with sin. But friend, what happens? The next catastrophe, all the weapons come right back out. It's all getting dug back up because it's never been scripturally put away. Friends, you and I cannot have God-honoring, harmonious, joyful marriages 
without an understanding of Bible forgiveness. You cannot have meaningful Christian fellowship long term or be an integral part of a local church bearing fruit for the long haul without understanding forgiveness. I think one of the reasons so many people, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm convinced one of the reasons so many people in this generation have become perpetual church hoppers because they refuse to face up to the difficulties of interpersonal relationship and handle it in a God-honoring manner. It's hard. God never said it wouldn't be. But what are you going to do about it? And so they're going to go find the next perfect church only to be disappointed that there's sinners there too, including themselves. I think that's one of the reasons why social media is so huge. Don't get me wrong, I know there's right uses of it. In fact, we're having a right use of it right now. But I think part of the reason is twofold. Number one, everybody can portray their own self-image in ways they handcraft and make themselves look a certain way. Only certain pictures, only certain snapshots, only certain things. So I have an online self-image that why it's going to make me look just like I want me to look. What's the other reason? I can have a thousand friends, friends, without ever dealing with the hurtful complexities of interpersonal relationships with fellow sinners. And so many people opt to have a thousand shallow friends that mean nothing and could care less about them. All they see is a little image. While the people the Lord superintended to cross pathway with them on a daily basis, they won't deal with. That's tragic. I mean, you think uh, forgiveness issues are a problem now. Wait till the next me generation that's drunk with social media takes the reins of leadership. It's so imperative we understand this stuff. We cannot have true unity here at this church without understanding forgiveness. And friends, above all that, we can't walk in fellowship with God seeing continual answers to prayer and enjoying His blessings without understanding something about forgiveness. How many of you ever struggle... Don't raise your hand, but how many of you ever struggle with really, really believing and grasping God's forgiveness towards you? Probably most of you struggle with that. Some may struggle more than others. It is a practical guarantee, though, that the times you are struggling the most to grasp hold of God's affection and forgiveness and promises to you, that you are going to have the most difficulty extending forgiveness to others. That's a guarantee. My goal in all of this is to help us have a firm grasp on this topic. Maybe some of you more than you've ever had. I know backgrounds vary. But if that can be accomplished, uh, the benefits are going to be very far-reaching. Every relationship you're a part of now and in the future with the Lord and people. Uh, by the way, I said I would touch on it back in Romans 15. I'll just mention it in passing right now. You remember Paul uh, he commended this church that they were able to admonish one another. You remember that? And the word admonish, uh, that verb is where we get the word nuthetic, talking about nuthetic counseling. Now I'll admit, when I hear the phrase Christian counselor, like someone comes to me and says, hey, we're going to see a Christian counselor, I'll admit my default mechanism is to cringe. Because most of the time, that refers to somebody who cares more about Sigmund Freud and Norman Vincent Peale than they do the Word of God. But nuthetic counseling, that's the right kind of Christian counseling. That's the kind that deals with root causes. That's the kind that comes back to sound theology, is built on a solid foundation, and leads people through the cycle of confession and repentance and restoration. That is what counseling is supposed to do. The vast majority of counseling situations, whether as a pastor or not, if you've not found it, you will. They're going to at least involve, if not revolve, around what is forgiveness and how is it exercised and practiced and how is it maintained. Much of the time, it's going to come right back to that. But you know, the good news is things can move quickly. But it takes whatever parties are involved, to both deal with their part. 
Let's say I'm dealing with a a marriage struggle. Here's what I try to communicate at the beginning. Number one, I've already chosen whose side I'm on. I'm on the Lord's because I fear Him a lot more than either one of you. Number two, if both of you are not willing to yield your life to the Word of God, there's very little I can do for you. I will not stand as a replacement for your obedience to the Lord. The only answers I have are the Word of God. The only hope I can give you is hope in the Lord. And if you're not willing to come God's way, I can't help you. But, I will give you a 100% guarantee. If everybody involved is willing to do their part and humble themselves before the Lord and deal with their issues biblically, everybody willing to do that, things can move very quickly and the Lord will restore. But it comes back down to subjection to the precepts of God. Now, what's some of the reasons why forgiveness is so widely misunderstood? One of the biggest is the rise of so-called modern pop psychology. This whole train of religiously named and misguided people, quite frankly, with James Dobson holding the banner and leading the march. I'm not being unkind, I'm just telling you that's fact. If you examine the depth of where he goes with counseling, it doesn't go back to the basic foundations of Scripture. It's very interlaced with Robert Schuller and Norman Vincent Peale and the self-esteemism like that. And these books, listen, they fill the shelves at religious bookstores. And the emphasis is on emotionalism, shifting blame, loving self, and esteeming self. I remember the exact quote. I remember reading Dobson some time ago. and Here's what he said. When the keys of self-esteem are taken out of the hands of the general population like in America, that's where all the drug abuse and violence and all that comes from. So in his view, the root problem with school shootings and drunkenness and violence, the root problem is that man has not been puffed up enough and told how terrific he is. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like Paul. Someone said years ago about Norman Vincent Peale. <laughs> I find Paul appealing and Peel appalling. It's very true. Let me give you some examples. How about those that teach you to forgive God? You'll find that at the Christian bookstore. Betty Tapscott's book called Set Free, here's what she talks about. She's counseling this woman who's mad at God because her husband and her sons were short. This lady's just fuming over this. And she relates the account of how she helped her. Then I gently said, Can you see what you've been doing to your husband and children? They cannot change their height, and you've been angry toward them and God. I led her in a prayer saying, God, I ask forgiveness for my resentment and self-will, and I forgive you for my husband and sons being so short. How about Lewis Swedes? Would it bother God too much if we found our peace by forgiving Him for the wrongs we suffer? I mean, I hope, I hope those statements make your blood boil. That we would forgive God for the alleged mistake He made in His providence? That's shocking. How about forgiving self? That's a big one today, isn't it? Someone says, oh, I, just can't, I just can't forgive myself. Now, I want to say I do understand sometimes it's semantics because someone doesn't know how to describe what's really going on within. I get that. Okay? Many times when somebody says that, what they're trying to express is, I have a hard time taking God's forgiveness. I have a hard time believing He could save a wretch like me. I get that. But when the concept runs full circle of forgiving self, first of all, friends, we, it's based on the presupposition that mankind has such a low view of himself that he needs to learn to love himself and forgive himself above everything else. Is that what Romans 1 teaches? Is that where sin comes from? 
Sin comes from willing rebels thumbing their nose at God and saying, I'll rule my own life, and destruction comes out from there. Forgiving self is a foreign concept in Scripture. The Bible makes it plain man has a high view of himself without the slightest difficulty. Friends, self-pity is pride turns backwards. That's all it is. Do you know what the problem with self-pity is? Self. Self. The problem with self-pity is it's still a preoccupation with me. The Bible teaches the problem with you and I is our preoccupation with self. And we learn to love God and love others. That's where the chains are broken. What did Jesus say were the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. I don't know about you, I haven't found the other verse in Second Opinions chapter 1 that adds a third command that says, oh, and love your little self too. You see, this whole pop psychology foundation is built on a framework of denying the sovereignty of God and denying the depravity of man. That's why it's so ineffective to deal with interpersonal issues. Listen, somebody might find some kind of pseudo-peace by saying, Oh Lord, I forgive you. But that's not a peace that's going to last. You think God's capable of mistakes? Let me tell you something. You've got a whole lot more catastrophe coming. You see, a person who really understands the wickedness of human nature is not going to fall into the self-esteem trap. We think of the basic premise. I had higher expectations and goals for myself and I failed. I just can't forgive my sinful side for not living up to the image that my pride has projected. But it still comes back to who? Me. Me. The Lord says, if any man will come after me, let him think a lot about himself. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. How about forgive and forget? Somebody says that to you. You need to forgive and forget. How's that working? The problem is that memory of yours, right? Uh, We forget the things that we want to remember, and then we remember the things we want to forget. Isn't that nice? Friends, God is the only one who's entirely able to do that, and we'll talk about it when we get to it later on, but even God's not remembering is different than forgetting. Vastly different. But somebody says forgive and forget, they're telling you once again, it's a mental exercise that makes you almost forget something happened. That's not where forgiveness is found. See, forgiveness is found through dealing with it scripturally, which is where the peace really comes. Not from convincing myself it didn't happen. How about thinking of forgiveness in terms of emotion rather than what it really is? I mean, somebody asks you, have you forgiven so-and-so? And what do we do? We consult with our feelings. Let's see. How do I feel about that today? Um, I think so. Now, later in the day when I skip lunch and I get stuck at three traffic lights and I stub my toe, no, I don't forgive them. You see, because it's an emotional question. It's all about how you feel when it's aimed there. Do you feel like you've forgiven? Completely misses the point. By the way, the word apology. I want to be careful and not say it's a terrible word if it's understood rightly. But do you know what an apology is? Apology is the world's substitution for the biblical repentance and forgiveness that it doesn't know how to exercise. Did you catch that? An apology is guilty sinners knowing something has to be done with interpersonal conflict, but they don't know what. And so they rather clumsily they come up and say, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. What are they saying? I have bad feelings. And? That's still not dealing with the root issue. I'm not saying sorry is a terrible thing to say, but if it stops there, that's not forgiveness and repentance. All you did was share a feeling. How about basing our definition on some Christian movie or play? 
I mean, did that ever happen? You know, some movie put up by a Christian organization depicts forgiveness a certain way and emotional music plays and the eyes are moist and that, that must be how forgiveness works. Uh, not necessarily. How about minimizing it? Oh, it wasn't that bad. I... How about comparisons? Well, you know, it's really not as bad as what so-and-so went through. What about when it is that bad? Hmm? I've dealt with some people over the years that have gone through situations that blow my mind. Many men in the prison. It was like something out of a horror film when they described their upbringing. And so I come to them and say, oh, it's not that bad. You're making a big deal out of it. Is that going to help? He knows better than that. It was that bad sometimes. The home you grew up in has a huge impact on how you handle conflict resolution and how you define forgiveness. That's not an excuse. But it's something to recognize. How many of you grew up in a home where in an ongoing atmosphere of love and encouragement and sound Bible doctrine, sin was confronted plainly, lovingly, firmly, it was then confessed and repented of, forgiveness was verbally extended, and relationships flourished on an ongoing basis. How many of you would say, that was my home? Not many. You see, many of us are in the position of trail-breaking. You can look at the things you deal with as making the run easier for those coming behind. Many of you, honestly, have maybe never been part of a home and seen biblical forgiveness in action. And you know what's happening isn't right, but you don't know where to go from there. Certainly understand that. You have to realize it's an uphill battle if that's the case, but you have to face it. And by the way, you parents that are here, one of the biggest legacies you can possibly leave is to learn, to practice, and teach, and expect biblical conflict resolution on a daily basis in your home. And if we as parents don't succeed there, it will be a curse and all their relationships for years to come. That's that important. Another reason for the misunderstanding on forgiveness is only emphasizing part of the overall picture. And that happens with a lot of Bible doctrines. I mentioned that in the Calvinism-Arminianism debate. What's the issue with both of those systems? They build their framework on part of the Scripture to the neglect of other parts. And friends, listen, it's not hard to open up your concordance, and look up the word forgiveness in related terms and sort through this. It's, it, there's some difficulties, I won't say that, but I'm saying all of us can actually go through the study on our own and learn a great deal. And so danger comes when one part of the overall picture is emphasized without having a view of all the facets, kind of pulling out one proof text as ammo while ignoring the others that speak on the same topic. I mentioned this in Romans 16. Ask any pastor when you have to deal with a church discipline type situation, what's immediately leveled at you? Unforgiveness. I mean, that's the first thing said. Usually with a partial definition and scope of that term. Friends, listen. There's dangers again on understanding one part of this kind of on either side. And a lot of that depends on which part of the controversy you play. Let's say you have the person who caused an offense, who honestly won't deal with it. They're going to spiritualize it or they're going to come up with excuses. Their carpet looks like that. And uh, their tendency of the flesh, the same flesh you have, by the way, is to minimize it or blow it off or accuse them of being unforgiving and unloving when they won't just let it go. What's on the other side? Let's say you're the person who was offended. And uh, you go to them and they don't deal with it. Now, we'll talk about this extensively later. The Bible answers that question. 
But see, the tendency when we are in that position is to justify anger and frustration and bitterness and different things because they won't repent. But both of those widely miss the Bible picture. Both of them. And it largely depends on which side of it we're on. I think all of us have been on both sides of that. In fact, it's possible to be on both sides simultaneously. With a person you've offended, you can accuse them of being unforgiving, while simultaneously, somebody that offended you, you can get mad that they won't repent. That's how the flesh works, by the way. The flesh is not rational. The flesh does not make sense. Except that it hates God and wants you to do the same. By the way, so-called church discipline. Passages like Matthew 18. And I'll say more about that in a few weeks that are coming. It has a lot to do with this discussion. I'm not a big fan of that term. Uh, the term itself doesn't appear in the Scriptures. The concept definitely does. The reason I get frustrated about that term is because it's taken on a negative connotation. I mean, it's just been so maligned and butchered today. And... Uh, under the guise of love, many churches, or maybe most, completely despise the entire concept. I could provide page after page of new agey, ultra cool, uh, skinny jeans emerging guys who heap scorn on people who just do what the Bible says. They're apparently too sophisticated for that now. We don't need all the Bible. We've got space age ideas. Basically, they choose which parts of the Scripture they can just ignore. What's the root word for discipline, by the way? What's the root word? Disciple. Now think about this. What is the Great Commission? Make disciples. Teaching them to do what? To observe, to observe only the parts of the Scripture that make you feel fuzzy. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So you mean Matthew 18 is part of discipleship? Yes. That's exactly what it is. So if someone wants to use the church discipline, all it's doing is helping the Lord's people to deal with sin and offenses in a manner that honors God. And the vast majority of what's coined church discipline is taken care of in a single conversation between two people in private, and that's the end of it. That's where it ought to stop. That brings us to another reason why this is so misunderstood. Missing out on the main reason why we should exercise forgiveness in the first place. What is it? It's not to make you and I feel peaceful. It's not to heal friendships or keep churches from blowing apart, as wonderful as all of that is. All of that isn't a high enough motivation. All of that's secondary. The main reason for forgiveness is what? You ought to know it. The glory of God. That's the main reason. That His Word, His name, might prevail and be magnified in a world full of sinners. You'll hear me use the illustration many times. I'll do it again. Every relationship in the Bible. Every single one. Christian fellowship, husband, wife, parents to children, you name it. They're all presented. There's no such thing as a horizontal relationship in Scripture. Every one of them is triangular. You know what I mean by that? Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, wives, even as Christ forgave. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Wives, obey your husbands as the Lord. So the simple picture there is, human relationships can only really get intimately closer when both parties are taking steps towards God. The most loving thing you can do for the people in your life is obey the Lord. Period. The most loving thing you can do as a husband is to fulfill the role God gives you. Period. The most loving thing you can do as a child is do what the Bible says and obey your parents. 
The most loving thing you can do as a wife is to submit like the Bible tells you to and recognize God's sovereignty. So see, as a byproduct of seeking the glory of God, relationships get put in their proper order. And when those relationships are the singular focus, they can't be that way. When God is the focus, everything else falls into its proper place. I mean, why does God value real fellowship, real unity, real harmony between redeemed human beings? Because that displays His supernatural power to give victory over evil. To bring light from darkness. To show that someday He'll make all things new. When you exercise biblical forgiveness, and I'm going to emphasize the word biblical a whole lot as we go through this, not the pop psychology concept. But when you understand and exercise actual Bible forgiveness, what you are doing is bringing glory to God by showing a watching world, most of whom or many of whom know you're a Christian, and you're saying, this is what God is like. I may be a pale reflection. This is what God is like. I'll just say this to set the stage for next week and we'll be done. Notice that phrase. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So I'll say this. The forgiveness that we are commanded to exercise is based on how God extends forgiveness. That's one of the key principles in this whole discussion. I know you see that outline I gave you. There's four scriptural realms of forgiveness. And a lot of the problems come from crossing the wires in those four different areas. For instance, somebody reads 1 John 1.9 and says, if I confess my sin, God will forgive me. And you're asking, wait a minute, I thought I was forgiven already. What's the deal? It's two different kinds of forgiveness. One's judicial, one's parental. Likewise, human forgiveness mirrors that. There's two different facets of that. There's one we can always extend no matter what. There's one that's limited and can only come full scope when everybody's willing to do their part. And those have to be maintained. I'd like to get further this morning, but we do need to stop. So, Lord willing, next week we'll get more into the definition. What is forgiveness? What is it exactly? How would you define it? And what can we say about God that will illustrate what forgiveness is like? We'll get there, but let's pray. Father, help us to be receptive to Your Word. And I pray, Lord, as we walk through this, that You'd give us an increased understanding, an increased humility before You, an increased sensitivity. Lord, strengthen us and embolden us where we need it, but I pray You'd humble us where we need it too. You are God. There's none like You. Help us to bring You glory, even in these difficulties that inevitably come up. In Jesus' name, Amen.